people are worried about how can we survive with such high interest rates? Well, we'll survive such high interest rates because they'll bring inflation down and we'll have lower interest rates. So that's so the, the quicker that happens. And the reason why I think it's it's more feasible now than certainly in the 70s was it's been fairly recent. It wasn't that long ago we thought the inflation rate was going to be negative. There was thoughts about negative interest rates. And so that is behind us, but it's behind us relatively recently. That's the key. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am absolutely delighted to be joined here today by Stanford professor John Taylor. Professor Taylor, thank you so much for being here with us. It's good to be here. Thanks for asking me. I appreciate it. Well, we're delighted to have you back. I believe this is the third time that you've joined us since Breakline was started about seven years ago. And Professor Taylor, everyone here today has seen your bio. They're aware that you are a celebrated expert in economics and monetary policy. But I'd love for you to just talk to us a little bit about your career. Talk to us about your time in D.C. and your time at Stanford, some of your research and and teaching interests as well. Well, I got interested in economics a long time ago in college, actually. I did my thesis. We called it a thesis on economics. And it's not that much different, actually. What should the monetary policy be? What should fiscal policy be? So I, I really branched out from that. I got my PhD, taught at Princeton for a while. I taught at Yale for a while. And I came to Stanford and I've liked Stanford, been here ever since. It's a, it's a good place. But I think, as you say, the mixture of academic work and policy has been very important. I, I served four times in government, if you include the U.S. Navy as an officer, went to officer candidate school. But I started three times after that as, as policy jobs in the CEA and the Treasury. And that, that's a very valuable experience. I think it's you can't uh, discount that. As you know very well, the way that policy is applied in a democracy and other places, it really depends on how it's thought about. I, I think what I've learned over the years is try to make it as simple as possible, try to make it so that everybody can understand it. That's been the goal. And I think we're getting closer to that maybe even a little closer than we want, but that's the uh, that's the hope. And I think that experience has been very important. And knowing the people, I would add a little bit from the international perspective. I was Undersecretary of International Affairs in the Treasury, and so that meant a lot of travel into really tough places in the world. And that's, we're sort of facing those same circumstances right now with Ukraine and Russia. But it's an important feature of policy to think about the international aspects. But each country should get their own act in order first. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Professor Taylor. And as I suspected, you are being very modest. You're an expert in monetary policy, fiscal policy, international economics, among other areas. And you famously developed the Taylor Rule, which is one of the guiding principles that the Fed relies upon to determine interest rates. And just as we get started here, I'd love for you to explain the Taylor Rule at the outset of our conversation. And I think one thing that's really interesting about you, which you've already foreshadowed, is that you really care about simplifying these complicated concepts. And that's something that you've talked about a lot, making them accessible to everyday people. As you talk to us about the Taylor Rule, will you also share why that idea of simplification is so important to you? The so-called Taylor Rule is actually 30 years old, so it's been around for a while. And it's always attracted a lot of attention to my surprise, actually, because it's simple. It is really simple. It simply says that the interest rate should rise if inflation picks up. It should rise if unemployment gets too low. It's it. That's basically, you have to figure out what the normal rate is, and that's been a debate. But I think that the extent to which policy has been close to that has worked pretty well. 
when policy has been away from it, as in the in the 70s, it got pretty far in, and recently as well, things haven't worked so well. So that's really why I think there's more attention that's being paid for it, paid to it. And I think that will continue. And I guess the simplification is is becoming more and more attractive because policy gets hard. One of my colleagues at Stanford, he was Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman had a famous quantity equation which focused on money growth. And we talked an awful lot about this over the years. And so maybe that's where the idea of something simple came from. I'm not sure. But the models, of course, are very complicated, hundreds of equations. You know, that doesn't really make sense. And the more that the policy, monetary policy can focus on something simple, the better. Thank you, Professor Taylor. And you mentioned Milton Friedman, who was awarded the Nobel Prize. So there's a tremendous amount of coverage right now related to the role inflation is playing in the macroeconomic environment in the United States for obvious reasons. We've had, I think, about 140,000 layoffs in the tech sector alone. So I'd love for you to, to explain what inflation is and also why a 7% inflation rate, the November inflation rate just came out, I think it was 7.1%. Why is this problematic as long as wages are rising in tandem, right? Doesn't it mean that we can still afford to buy all the same things if our wages are rising as inflation rises? Why should we be concerned? Well, the idea of having a lower inflation rate goes back quite a ways. And it's it's been picked up. It's, it's so 2% is the target, so to speak. And we hear about that, about the Fed a lot. But it's not just the Fed. It's other countries. It's European Central Bank. It actually began in New Zealand, but it was actually, it's part of the Taylor rule. It's uh, 2% is is the target for inflationary. So inflation goes above 2%, you got to do something about it. So two is not zero. It's not one. It's a little bit above. It, it takes into account some of the bias that we think exists with inflation. So two seems to be a number which people can remember. It's, now, there is lots of talk, as you mentioned, of, hey, why not raise it? Why not have six? Why not have four? Does it really matter if wages are increasing too? And I think here it does matter. First of all, if it's if we raise to three, four, why not five, six? Why not seven? Why not ten? And it used to be that just that's how it was in the past, and that's how inflation rose. So I think it's best to resist that. The economy works better at a lower inflation rate. People don't try to look for alternatives, and we have a monetary system that is based on a low inflation rate. And globally too, it's very important so that. Some country, we've had really terrible situations where countries, say Latin America or Africa, have gotten off track, and it's been very hard for them. So, so I think this two percent is a, is a reasonable goal. It could be global, and that's what we should focus on. It's it's a nice round number too. Super. Thank you so much, Professor Taylor. And is there anything unusual about this recent rise in inflation in the United States? You've talked about inflation sometimes going up, sometimes going down. The inflation rate, as we talked about for November, came out at 7.1%. The Fed was expecting it to be about 7.3%, I think. Talk to us about this period of time. Is this phase of inflation, is this unique in history? And if so, should we be particularly concerned about it? It is unique in the sense it's come on pretty suddenly. So if you think about the earlier period in U.S. history when inflation was high, it was the 70s. It got higher and higher and higher, and finally the Fed did something about it. But that was like 10, maybe 12 years. This has been two years at max. That is good in the sense it means we can do something about it. It's not embedded. And that's one of the dangers. If it gets embedded in all sorts of expectations, wages, et cetera, then it's harder to get rid of. Then right now, it, I still think it's not so hard. If the Fed says, look, we have a target of two, we're going to make sure that occurs, then there'll be a rather smooth adjustment of inflation to more reasonable levels. And so that's what's different now. It's so important to stress that. A lot of people don't understand that. They think, oh, my gosh, the Fed has moved four times, a lot of movement. But they don't realize that the rate is still low for the inflation rate. It could be a little higher, and that would, if it's done in a predictable way, then that will deal with the inflation rate in a smoother way. We don't know for sure; it's not rocket science, but I think that's what that's what we're hoping for. And if it's done, if it's telegraphed, if it's signaled, it'll make it easier. Then workers and other price setters in the economy will know what to do. Where should the Fed be setting the interest rate right now? <laughs> 
Well, they're just moving up and up. They're in four plums. They're, they're going to move, it looks like, the next meeting. 50 basis points is the guess. It probably should be a little larger. But if you say the inflation rate is 7%, I don't know if that's, maybe that's the most recent reading, but say it's 5% or 6%, then they should still move it. The Taylor rule, which, by the way, it's if Fed publishes it. And the, I wrote down page 47 of their monetary policy report. There it is. And they took it out. They took it out when they were way off. They put it back in. They took it out anyway. It's back in again. I think it'll be in for a while. That's something to target, something to look at. But that says the interest rate should be higher. Now, we may luck out. Inflation rate come, may come down. So it doesn't have to be so high. But in the meantime, I think some deliberative statement, look, if inflation doesn't come down, we're going to have to raise the rate. There's no question about it. We're not going to have a higher inflation target. And I think that's where most people on the Fed are. John Williams is a president of the York Fed. He was a student at Stanford. And some of the former members of FOMC feel that way. There's a bit of debate. Jim Bullard is, is part of that debate, but we'll see what comes out. It seems to me that there's some notion of slowing, but they still have to be deliberative about what they're going to do, what they need to do. Professor Taylor, the way that you describe the Taylor rule, it is simple, and it should be simple for us to follow it. That should be simple for the Fed to follow it. You've described how in history there's a lot, you've done a ton of research that suggests that when your rule is followed, that inflation remains under control. And when we get away from it and pursue more interventionist policies, we've had trouble and we've we've gone through some, some tough days, including in the 70s, which you've mentioned, but also in the, the early 2000s. And why do we struggle to just do the simple thing that works? Why do we sometimes get away from what has been proven to work in the past? Well, it's a very good question. I think to some extent, people say, how could it be this simple? It can't, it has to be other things. And so that's the first thing. But I think more important, the, the Fed and other central banks operate in a political climate. And so there are always people saying, do this, do that. And the, the, they have to think about it. That can tend to drive them off a little bit. There's people say it doesn't matter. Some people say this, you have it, you should focus on a different rule completely. So there's a debate about it. And I think this this recent experience, I think of it if we come out of it in relatively good shape, it will be clear to people that simple is okay. And simple, it's pretty amazing. How could it be so simple? It doesn't make any sense. Just the unemployment rate, just the inflation rate, and maybe you adjust the the, the regular interest rate, the normal interest rate a little bit. But the truth is, why should it be more complicated? And I think that the extent to which when they've got off, things have not worked well. When things, when they're closed, things have worked pretty well. It's not perfect, but it works pretty well. That is seeping in. It's also true of other central banks. We didn't mention much about the European Central Bank, but they're behind as well, maybe even further behind. So they're just trying to catch up and they have to do it in a smooth way. But it's if it was more of a universal phenomenon, 2% inflation target, follow something like a Taylor rule, then we'd be better off. Mm-hmm. I want to get into a little bit of your prediction for how this might play out over the next 12 to 18 months. I bumped into you when I was last at Stanford, and you mentioned that you said if the Fed continues raising rates in a predictable way, continues to explain their moves and give people a sense of what's coming, we should be in for a soft landing. Can you tell us a little bit more, you know, as you look at the state of the economy today and how the Fed has handled it over the intervening maybe three months since I saw you, what do you expect to happen from here? And what does a soft landing actually look like in terms of the day-to-day experience of Americans with things like unemployment, you know, their ability to pay off their credit cards, their ability to pay off their mortgages? What does a soft landing actually look like? Well, the word soft landing is a little bit vague, but it simply means is a, a slowdown of the economy, at worst, a mild recession. But a deep recession is not a soft. It's not soft. That's hard. And so there's a great desire. I think it makes sense to try to avoid something harder and try to be softer. And softer usually implies a slowdown in the economy. And by the way, there are other things that are going on that could have stronger economic growth. But just focus on monetary policy. If the Fed wants to reduce inflation, it has to somehow get that in people's psyche. And again, one way to do it is say, look, we have a 2% inflation target. We're going to do that. 
And actually, that's been good. They've talked about it. But you have to deliver. You have to do something. You can't just hope it'll happen. And so the extent to which the Fed makes the adjustment, people will realize that. We're talking about gasoline prices or prices of food. It will come down at a, maybe it won't be 2% overnight, but it'll come down gradually. I hope it'll be 2% overnight, but it'll probably be more gradual than that. And if it does it in a way that people understand and expect, then it doesn't need to be this jolt to the economy. Usually, we've seen that when there's unemployment rises, then there's a less pressure on prices and wages. And so they come down. But it doesn't have to be that way. And there's this notion that people are forward looking, people are looking at what the price will be in the next few months, not just today. They're looking at what, how much wages need to increase over the next year or two. Sometimes it's that long. And so if they expect inflation to be lower and they will expect it if the Fed is promising, is indicating that it will do, then there'll be less of a need for the wage increase. And that's what's, that's the wage price spiral that people always talk about. Put wages catch up to prices and then prices get up to wages and blah, blah, blah. That's the spiral that people talk about. And we want to avoid that at all costs. We're seeing a little bit of it now, but I think it's, it's still behind the scenes. And just if we follow the wage price spiral to its sort of termination point, we get Venezuela, right? Or Zimbabwe. I hope not. Yes. But but that's what we're trying to avoid, like 100% inflation year after year, where all of a sudden your money is essentially worthless and we turn into a barter economy because people can actually rely on the value of physical goods. Well, we want to avoid that, but we're unfortunately not that situation. I think the the problem to avoid now is a repeat of the 70s. And uh, inflation did not get that high. Uh, we would not tolerate that. But what happens, unfortunately, when inflation gets too high, there's not much choice. The Fed has to raise rates and, and does it in a more destructive way. And so you want to avoid that. But I think that you're, you're right. There is a threat of Zimbabwe or something like that. But I think that's remote. The more serious concern is the Fed gets behind and they have this rate, 50 basis points, 25, whatever they're thinking about is not enough. So they have to raise rates. And that becomes something that's not part of people's expectations. They haven't built in. Look, it'd be very nice if automatically overnight people just had lower price increases, lower wage increases, and there's no effect on the economy. That's what we're hoping will happen. I mean, there'll be some effect. But here, there's other other things that can make growth higher, tax policy, regulatory policy, we're not focused on. So monetary policy sort of takes as given this overall path for the economy and tries to keep as close as possible to that. Okay, Professor Taylor, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit more. Okay. What is your prediction in terms of timing? When are we going to start a turnaround here? When is it going to start feeling like we've hit the bottom of the trough and we're starting to head back up in terms of coming out of this recessionary impact if we're not in an actual recession? What I would say, what's going to be the sign is if there's some noticeable reduction of inflation. It's it's going to be a sign of it's not a pass-through to wages. And we'll be able to see that. The numbers you mentioned, 7% of the past. And the thing is, because this is relatively new, relatively recent, it's possible for people to make the adjustment. And I think we will begin to see it. Now, there's a risk, to be sure. And the risk here is it doesn't change overnight. And we don't have lower inflation rate, 5% or something like that coming. And then the Fed has to make the decision. Again, we don't want to be a very high inflation. That's really destructive. The notion of a 2% inflation target has been very good. It's worked pretty well. And there's other things that can cause us to get away from it. But I think that lesson of monetary policy should not be forgotten. It's, there's a value people don't have to worry about. Well, it'll be 5%, 6% inflation. What about my wages? They'll be able to look at the impact of their wages and prices relative to a relatively stable overall inflation rate, say 2%. So if you have a 4% price increase when inflation is 2 you know that's 2% normal terms. And so that will make a difference. So I think this notion of 2% target, which the Fed has not given up on, that's good, should continue, but they have to take some actions to get there. And that's really what people are worried about. We can't have big actions because there's inflation, but we can have big enough actions. 
to get the inflation rate down without this impact on the economy. And so let's say the Fed follows the Taylor rule pretty predictably with raising between 50 and 75 basis points over the next six months. When do you think the turnaround would start happening? Can you oh, pull out your crystal ball? No, it would happen. It would if they were determined. It would happen very fast if they okay. were determined. But it's hard to do that. It's a political system. There's other people involved. There's different viewpoints. But I think if they continued to raise the rate, maybe another seventy-five, maybe another seventy-five, and then we'll be able to see the changes. The advantage there is you'll won't have this impact on the economy. People are worried about how can we survive with such high interest rates. Well, we'll survive this high interest rates because they'll bring inflation down and we'll have lower interest rates. So that's so the, the quicker that happens. And the reason why I think it's it's more feasible now than certainly in the 70s was it's been fairly recent. It wasn't that long ago. We thought the inflation rate was going to be negative. There was thoughts about negative interest rates. And so that is behind us, but it's behind us relatively recently. That's the key. I think the maybe the Fed should talk more about that in their discussions. Mm -hmm. Professor Taylor, I'm going to turn now to a couple of questions related to your commentary over the last few minutes from the Breakline community. There's one from John Blank, and he says, do you think that we experienced a recession in Q1 and Q2 of 2022? The federal government has denied this is the case, yet GDP shrank for those two quarters. If not, why? Yeah, well, first of all, they're they're very small. It's, we used to think about bigger ones, and I think it's okay to. We had a, a positive pickup in the most recent observation, so I think it's okay to focus more on the future and not worry about it. It was too bad, um, but there's other things that were going on. We we had a terrible crisis. We did have a recession at the time of COVID really hitting the economy, but I think the main thing is to focus on the future. And there is a danger that I've mentioned of having a recession, a serious recession. But right now, I think that's that's behind us. And the main focus should be the future. It's, it is a, a sense in which people say, hey, two negative quarters, isn't that a recession? Well, it's not really a deep recession. I don't really care what you call it. <laughs> it's something that's behind us. We need to think about the future. That's a good question. I, I would say let's leave it alone for now. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Professor Taylor. Zach Whittle has a question. He says, due to the political environment that the Fed operates in, what is its responsibility to communicate its intentions? In your opinion, is it appropriately utilizing modern channels to educate the public on its actions? If not, where could it improve? Well, first of all, the Fed has come a long way. The notion of a 2% target is didn't always exist. There was higher rates before. The notion that there's some discussion about what where the rate's going to go. There's there's debate about it. Sometimes called forward guidance. There's some debate whether that makes a difference. So they've come a long way, but they haven't gone all the way in terms of a strategy or a rule. And to some extent, the fact, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the the rules were first put in the report when Janet Yellen was the chair, and stayed for a while. Then it came out, I think, because they were so far behind, went in, went out, back in again. And so it'll be in for a while. And so that is a guideline. It's not perfect, but it's a guideline that if you're off from that, it's not good. You can say, why did the Fed get so far off? Well, maybe it was political. Maybe they didn't see it coming. Who knows? But there were a lot of people complaining at the time, you're off. And so let's not focus so much on the past, but from the, on the future. And I think that there's lots of things. It's, it's an organization that the chair of the Fed is appointed, confirmed by the president. And so it's a, it's a political thing. It's, you have the members of the board as well as local representatives like San Francisco, et cetera. Different countries, it's very important to point out, are operating in somewhat different ways. But I think the more that the Fed and other central banks can be more predictable, that really works better. It's, it, my overall experience with economic policy over many years is that the, the more that people understand what the policy is about, the better it works. Why make it mysterious? Why surprise people? What's the reason for that? And I think the reasons are beginning to disappear. And maybe this episode now, hey, why didn't you tell us you were doing this? What was the reason? Is going to be embedded. And especially if we come out of this relatively painlessly, it's not clear we will. But I think that the Fed needs to adjust to that situation and, and make 
make it clear what they're trying to do. And the fact that they, there's a lot of discussion of these rules. I mean, that's not the only rule, but they're all sending the same message at this point. It's simple is better. Everybody understands it. Why should it be so complicated? And it can be part of the political systems. That's my hope. Mm -hmm. Professor Taylor, thank you. And I was just thinking about some of your previous commentary around the Nixon administration, the Carter administration, where in some ways, surprisingly, with President Nixon in particular, they pursued interventionist policies and with disastrous results. But it was political pressure, as I recall you describing why it was all about political pressure from their constituents. How do we guard against that? You know, how do we stay the course with what works and not get distracted with this is the flavor of the day? And so I'm just going to do this thing to kind of quiet down this interest group. How do we help the Fed stay the course? Well, I think the first thing is to emphasize clarity is important. And if you go back to the Nixon period, which you raised, uh, the Arthur Burns was the chair, and he he basically said it's not us, you know, it's it's something else, and so he persuaded President Nixon to have wage and price controls, which looked good for a, a, a short period of time, but then inflation came back, and so we went through this really difficult period in the '70s until well, Paul Volcker came in and Alan Greenspan came in, and they had different kinds of policy. That's what you need to have. So it was really a switch. It was it was less political. You can't separate the politics out completely, but it was less political, more determined. That was about the time that there was more focus on policy rules that came into play. And uh, there was a lot of debate about it. And, and so I think that was a benefit. Now, in the, we're in a situation now, which is different, as I've stressed. The inflation has picked up relatively recently. I know it's hard to imagine a year and a half is recent. But it comes up recently, and so it can come down. We can have gasoline prices and food prices and energy prices coming down. And I think that's that's the key. And and so but here, communication is so important. And I think to some extent, I hate to mention international so much, but this is an international phenomenon. We have high inflation in Europe, and we have other things going on. And you haven't asked about this, but a lot of people say, well, it's just it's just a Ukraine, it's just Russia driving up prices. Yes, it's a little bit of that, but it's not really is the main story. And it's easy for people to say, hey, just don't worry about it. As soon as we deal with this war, it will be over. Well, we have other things going on, and I think people have to pay attention to that. Maybe a little bit is because of this military issue. I'd say just as a side comment, perhaps, I think the economics has not been as much of a focus recently as the military and the diplomacy issues. And I'd like to have that come back in because there are different systems and there are different approaches. And the more that we can focus on the, I would say, economics, more broadly speaking, the issues that are economics of nature, in nature, is the better we can do. I'm sorry to be off track, but I think there's a very important phenomenon to, I'm at the Hoover Institution, so we have Jim Mattis and we have H.R. McMaster and Jim Ellis. And so we talk about, you know, much more about this than I do. We talk about these issues, and I, I think they agree that there could be more to focus on the economics as well. Anyway, sorry to, mm-hmm. to distract from the main conversation. No need to apologize, Professor Taylor. You're dropping pearls of wisdom, and we're just here to collect them all. You. And you mentioned General Mattis. When I saw you at Stanford a few months ago, I was chatting with General Mattis, and it was just a lucky coincidence that you ran by his office. So <laughs> thank you for mentioning one of my heroes. You were talking about, because within the discourse, there are economists who say, COVID is having an impact. The Ukraine war is having an impact. Supply chain issues are having an impact. Your stance has been monetary policy is really what drives and what moves the levers. Can you quantify it for us? Is monetary policy 90% of the solution? Well, it depends on the time period because you can see impacts on gasoline prices and things like that. But it's really the whole story if you go long enough. By the way, there's always been these other things. It's not new. It used to be more attention paid to them. Because we have not thought about this monetary theory enough, it's still relatively new. I'm sorry, it is relatively new. There's still, oh, don't worry, it's this, it's that, it's this. It's the ship's 
piling up in the harbor. It's the war in Ukraine and gasoline prices. And it's easy to point to things like that. It's easy to see it. But I think what the experience shows, and this is now international experience as well, because you see different countries are surviving in different ways. The more that we can point to these monetary phenomena and people will understand that. I think this, I think this will, the situation will help, the better off we'll be. But there will always be these other things that people can point to, especially if they want to say it's not us, it's them or somebody else is causing the problem. Mm-hmm. What is the interplay with fiscal policy? Is it just a matter of the central bank sticking to its guns, which will then influence those responsible for fiscal policy to act in a responsible way? The current inflation in the U.S. has been blamed on prior COVID-related stimulus policies enacted by politicians. This is a very, very important question. It's because monetary policy and fiscal policy go together. It's hard to run fiscal policy when the deficits are are very large and they've got large before the COVID problem hit us. And so that itself will, I think, raise interest rates and is not a healthy situation. It'd be better if we had a more responsible fiscal policy. There's other things going on. I mean, you think monetary policy is hard to think about fiscal policy. But I think that, again, it goes together. The more that fiscal policy can be close to a balanced budget in normal times, circulate around a, a balanced budget when there's recessions, and booms that go the other way. And then that will be a better situation. And and we have lots of evidence that it's hard when you have a perpetual large deficit to keep money growth in line, to keep interest rates in line. So I think they go they both go together. We focused on monetary policy here, but I think it'd be better off, be easier for the Fed if there was some, I would say, more responsible monetary policy. We haven't got there yet. We may be getting there. We'll see. Thank you for that. When the Taylor rule could not be applied, it couldn't go below zero, we used quantitative easing. Now the Fed is raising interest rates while applying quantitative tightening. How can we best predict the impact of this tightening? Well, it's a very important question. So the Fed has not only dealt with interest rates, it's expanded its balance sheet is what we say as quantitative easing. And they've done that by purchasing more treasuries and more mortgage-backed securities. So their balance sheet has gone up. It's held pretty steady recently. And this is not the first time that's occurred. It's occurred in the last recession we had. And so my recommendation, and I've done this myself, is to study the impact of this. And it's, it's surprisingly small. There's a lot of things that are going on, you think about it. And so it's not the big effect. It's really more these monetary things, interest rate things, I didn't mention a term structure, but term structure means that if people expect the short rate to be lower for a year or two, then the longer rate comes down as well. And so that's an important aspect as well. Those are also important to keep in mind. But I think the issue about other things is very important. You can always point to things. You you drive down the street, you point this, you point there's a fire, there's a drought, and those are moving prices around. But ultimately, It seems to be more monetary. That's not a new discovery. It's been around for a while. And there'll be other things for sure. But focus on these issues. The monetary issues is the most most important at this point. And it's clearly a relationship between the Fed being off and inflation increasing. Mm -hmm. Related question. Surprised to see bond yields haven't increased more than they have given negative real M2 growth. Do you think the management of the Fed's balance sheet has done part of the work of interest rate hikes? and that this is now an accepted tool in the monetary policy arsenal? Well, it may be an accepted tool. It's been used twice. It's used a lot recently. It's something for the Fed to do. It's related a little bit to this question of negative rates, because when the rate gets close to zero, the Fed has not gone negative as as the European Central Bank has gone negative. And so what do they do instead? Well, they they do more, they do. They buy more treasury, they buy more back securities, and the hope is that will lower those rates. The question is, does it really matter when the ultimate policy hasn't changed? And I don't think they have, but there will be a temptation. It's not rocket science, not as rocket science, but it's harder to persuade people, hey, don't buy these mortgage-backed securities because it looks like it's in effect. So, well, it's not popular now, it may come back. It's come back, you know, started, it's come back big time recently. It may come back again. 
I don't think it's a good idea. I think monetary policy is better if it's focused on one instrument. It's a lot to do with to keep that in line. You have to worry about money growth as well when you do that. So I think that should be the focus. But it's a real, a very important question, and, and, and the Fed has not completely abandoned that. We'll see what happens if, I hope not really too, too soon, rates get near zero again. But I think until then, we shouldn't be worrying about that. Thank you, Professor Taylor. And I'd love for you to explain what the dual mandate is. We're at what seems like a pinch point for the dual mandate, recognizing that supporting both objectives is by necessity a trade-off. Do you think it's more appropriate to target a single objective? And what would be the circumstances that might drive a reconsideration of the dual mandate? The dual mandate refers to the fact that the Fed is both concerned about inflation and unemployment or the state of the economy. So that's dual. There's two things, inflation and the state of the economy. So now the unemployment rate is quite low. There's not a lot of focus on that. It will be if the unemployment picks up. So the focus has been more on inflation. And so that's why I think there's this description that we're going to a single mandate, but we're not. And just to be sure, the the so-called Taylor rule has both variables. There's two. Inflation rate is too high. You have to raise rates. But if unemployment goes too high, you have to lower rates or vice versa. So there's always been this dual. and, And I think that's always been a feature of monetary policy. You want to keep the economy steady. And so if there's some impact that causes inflation to rise, you want to reduce the interest rate. And so that's always been there. Right now, it's not as much of a factor. It's not a factor at all because the unemployment rate is so low, but it could come back. And so I just want to emphasize, maybe say it again, there is a dual mandate. It's part of most rules and most ideas the Fed has thought about, and it's there now. And so when I say the interest rate should be higher, it's focused on on one of them because the other one is in pretty good shape. So I don't have to add too much by saying, oh, the unemployment rate is 7 or 8%. It's not. That's really why it seems like it's one mandate, not two. It's really not. Mm-hmm. And Professor Taylor, I'd love for you to contrast this with the 1970s so that everyone here understands what it looked like when we got it wrong. In the 70s, inflation got so high that the Fed actually had to crash the economy in the early 80s to stamp it out. So today, the interest rate November was 7.1%. The Fed's interest rate, I think, is hovering at about 4.25%. Unemployment, as you said, I think is around 3%, super low, historically low. Can you talk to us about what those levels looked like in the 70s and early 80s and how the American public would know if we were getting close to that danger zone? Well, unemployment got very high. Inflation got very high in a more persistent way. And it didn't occur overnight. There were really three stages where inflation got higher and higher and higher. And each time it's because the Fed eased up and inflation picked up, eased up and inflation picked up. So finally, They said enough was enough, and it wasn't painless, that's for sure, but they got inflation down. And then Paul Volcker was responsible for that. But don't forget, Alan Greenspan as well continued with that policy and made sure that if if the inflation picked up, there was an increase in the interest rate. So things worked pretty well. But the contrast now with the 70s is really quite striking. We have a relatively recent, it came suddenly. It's more based on monetary policy. Yes, you can say the ships are piling up the war in Ukraine, but that's not what's going on. Price increases began before that. So it's really more attributable to something on monetary policy. And I think that's the difference. And if the Fed was able to continue with what it's doing until it convinced people that, hey, we don't need to have this high inflation rate, it's not unrelated. And that will make the whole difference. So the contrast with the 70s is a very important question. It's so important to to point out. This need not be like the 70s. We need not have the draconian actions that Paul Volcker uh, took. It could be smoother, and I think it will be smoother if if the Fed is more deliberative. And there, there was less discussion. I remember many, many conferences and things back then arguing what the Fed should do. It took a long time. Uh, but they eventually did what they had to do. They don't have to do that extreme now. I think that's the main message that I would like to get across. And I talked to people at the Fed about this as well. 
Professor Taylor, what is that tussle like when you economists are getting together and trying to agree on what rules to include in that policy framework? Well, you know, monetary policy is a complicated thing. And so the more there can be descriptions about that, the better off there is. There's more that more unanimity. Two members of the FOMC recently came off. They were at a conference we had here at Stanford. And so they're sort of on the same, not exactly the same line, but a similar line that I have, but they're off at this point. We'll see how it goes. And there's differences of opinion. It's not just the chair. There's other Mm. people that are making these decisions as well. But that's how I would look at this. Mm -hmm. Okay, a few more questions from our audience. Eric Bermudez is asking, what effect do you think blanket student debt relief would have on the economy, if any? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. I don't have any student debt, so it's not personal. I think this is a real question about debt forgiveness. And I think the notion that people have engaged in a contract that should pay it off, that that's a reasonable thing to do. We have that's our system. There's special circumstances. So I would keep it specialized as much as possible. Don't write it off completely. That's not what people expected. And I think this is something which the, the public sector, it's different. The private sector, that's for sure, has to be as close as possible to what the private sector would be doing in this circumstance. So it's a, it's a tough question. I don't think it impinges too much on monetary policy, but it's, it affects the deficit for sure. But the monetary policy is, it should be focused on what it's doing, regardless of what happens to the debt. Thank you. And what tools do you recommend to the average American to educate themselves on the macroeconomic environment of today? That's such a good question. And I teach at Stanford, uh, Economics One, it's called. And there's a lot of people have no, no economics before. And, and uh, how do you make that interesting and relevant? And I think it's it goes across the board. How do you describe what's going on? It's, you don't want to make it too technical. That's the advantage of these rules. They're simple, but so that they can be described. It's not that hard to write it down and think about it. And so I think the more that can be explained that way, I think that, you know, one advantage way back when, I'll mention Milton Friedman again, he had this idea of just keep money growth constant. Well, as easy to understand, you have MV equals PY, it's equal to understand, keep money growth constant, and velocity is constant, keep GDP constant, or growing at a steady rate. So it's a little harder to do that uh, with the interest rate. I, I recognize that the connection is a little harder. You have short rates and long rates, you have the exchange rate, there's other things that are going on. But I think that it's the more that we can explain how this works, that we don't want high inflation, we want 2%, maybe explain why that's the case. The way to get there is the Fed will have to raise the rates when inflation rises above two, it'll lower rates when inflation rises below two, that's the way it works. And you can debate whether the size of the interest rate increase is appropriate or not appropriate. But that's really the trick is to explain that. And I do it all the time in different ways. I dress up as in costumes and try to drill it home a little bit. I teach in Semex Auditorium, which you know that's near the business school, in the business school. So we can get a lot of people in listening. That's phenomenal. Professor Taylor, I also want to recommend... The, it was about a one-hour conversation that you had with another economist, Russ Roberts, and he has a podcast called Econ Talks. And Zach, I thought that was excellent, especially for just the you know average American trying to get up to speed on what's happening. So another conversation with Professor Taylor that was extremely interesting. We've seen the idea of universal basic income become more popular in recent years. For example, it was a key part of Andrew Yang's recent presidential primary bid. Do you think that technological change and job destruction will drive our economy to a point where the UBI is necessary? So this is a very important question. It goes well beyond monetary policy. But I think here you need to have your overall policy with strong growth and maybe 3% rather than 2%. You have to worry about income distribution. That's really becoming an issue and a problem as COVID has made it clear certain sectors are not doing so well. I would say here the, the emphasis should be more on the distribution of income and make sure your policies are not making a mess of that. This is regulatory policy. It's policy with respect to labor markets. So I would say having a basic income is not 
the easy way to do this. The easy way to do this is to provide opportunities for people. I know that you're interested in schooling. It's so important. That really seems remote from monetary policy, but if we're not providing education to those who are least well off, we're making it worse. It's not only the good schools, it's the medium schools, it's the schools in the poor areas, which I worry about. So those are the things that I would stress. It's really, it seems like a long way to go about it. It takes a while, but maybe education is the most important thing after monetary policy to look at. What can we do to make it better? There's lots of ideas, lots of choices to make, and I don't know, not everybody can go to Stanford. I think that's fascinating that you say education is the second most important factor behind monetary policy. Will you say a little bit more about why? Well, that's the long run. The human capital, as we call it, you get you increase your human capital by more education, and so you're able to earn more. And we've seen that people with more education, not uniform, but it's really works so well. And so I would say this is something that we need to focus more on in the United States. And uh, it's different, different countries, different states, different areas, different locale. And so that's, I think it's very important. You know, that's where economic growth will come come from. It's It'll be better technology, better human capital, as I put it, better, better education. We think long-term growth comes from more skilled labor force, more ability to have ideas. It also comes from more capital, of course. Capital labor ratios are very important. But this idea of improving the human capital, maybe it's because I'm an educator, but I think it's very important to stress that. And we haven't talked about this to some extent. We're using Zoom methods here. I've created a course maybe five or six years ago, Massive Open Online course, which anybody in the world can look at. It's the same course. And and, and it was quite popular. Maybe I'll get back to that a little bit. But that's the kind of thing that that's just economics. It's one part of one part of what people need to learn. But we can do much better. And using the technology that we have, and I think we should be focusing on that as well. Monetary policy is important, that's for sure. I don't want to forget that. But it's the this education, education about monetary policy, which is, is where the question came from originally. Mm. Thank you, Professor Taylor. We're coming up on time, and I'm going to ask one more question, which is coming from my teammate, Brandon Self. And he says, he was the valedictorian of his high school class, Professor Taylor, I have to tell you. He says, is the inflation data that came out today a sign that inflation is easing for good? Or is this a false sense of security? He's talking about the fact that it came down from 7.7 to (laughs) (laughs) 7.1%. Are there other factors that we should all be aware of or that are not being appropriately taken into account that will result in this high inflation period continuing on for a longer period of time? The seven percent is still high, even if it's seven one, seven two, seven three. So you want to see more than that. That's for sure. Don't don't think it's solved because we got these changes. Many people look over long periods of time. They see how much increased, how much has decreased. What's the forecast? But I think it doesn't change the the overall situation, unfortunately. And it, there may be some surprises. And we have a tighter monetary policy than we had six months ago, for sure. So it's probably having some effect. But ultimately, again, historical experience shows that rates need to be higher, given the inflation rate 7%, 7%, and we have what you mentioned, 4% interest rate. That's a big negative. And I think that means people will take advantage of that. And you could have a higher interest rate without being contractionary because inflation is is as high as it is. So this goes back to the so-called real interest rate, the inflation rate, which is correcting for the interest rate. It's still negative and it doesn't need to be so negative. It'll come, it'll be less negative. Inflation comes down, it'll be less negative if interest rates go up. So we need a little bit of both of those things. I think that's what history says. That's what many people outside the Fed are saying. Not everybody, because some people don't like high interest rates, as was discussed before, but Ultimately, that's what the economy needs. And let me just mention, I'm sorry, the international (laughs) is so important. Christine Lagarde and the European Central Bank and and there's other things that are going on in the world are more important than they used to be. The world is more integrated. It'll become more integrated. And so we need to think about monetary policy more generally. Professor Taylor, last tiny question for me. 
One of the reasons why I love chatting with you at moments like this is because you're so reassuring. You know, I remember <laughs> during COVID, you know, the world was melting down and you said, we're going to have a V-shaped recovery. And when I saw you at Stanford a few months ago, you said, we're going to have a soft landing. <laughs> and I feel like that voice of reassurance is so important right now because there can be a tendency to panic or to kind of inject some histrionics in, in the discourse. So as we wrap up today, do you have some reassuring commentary about, you know, what the next year, year and a half could look like for the United States? The only reassuring commentary I'd have is if the Fed doesn't give up, that's a bit of a worry. And I think this is something which we should look at. I don't think they will. There, there might be 50 rather than 75, the next meeting coming up real, real soon. But I think that's not a sign they're giving up. But right now, you have to look for inflation coming down. People are seeing a little bit of an improvement. Well, there's not much of an improvement, but we'll be there. So I think the main thing is don't give up. Keep at it. It's a relatively new increase in inflation compared to previous periods. It's something that we can deal with smoothly. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a contractionary in the sense of negative. It might be a soft landing. That you use that word, not me. It could be something that's it's nice and soft, and then we'll get back to more substantial growth policies, which have growth where we we have three percent and and incomes are rising across the board. There's greater opportunities for people throughout the economy uh, and better education. Let's not forget that. Professor Taylor, what a treat to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Bethany, thank you so much. Great questions, great conversation. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. You bet. Thank you so much, Professor Taylor. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of The Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.